Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Sheckman. The 19th century has often been referred to as the imperial or British century. The period after World War II was, in words coined by Henry Luce, the American century. Today, as we move headlong into the 21st century, we're entering what my guest Prague Kahana sees as the Asian century. This dramatic change is not just about China, although China is a big part of it. It's also about the 40 other countries that make up Asia, that are connecting in a system of trade and engagement that is both ancient and modern. It's about the greater integration of Europe and Asia. It's about a world and a future where history matters, even in the face of cutting-edge modernity. It's a world where politics, economics, geography, and historical context matter, and where any nation not understanding all of these factors will do so at its own peril. How we got here is important, as is equally where we are. And that's the subject of Prague Kahana's new book, The Future is Asian. Prague Kahana is the managing partner of FutureMap, a scenario planning and strategic advisory firm. He's been a fellow at Brookings, New America, and the Lee Kuan Yew School at the National University of Singapore. He's been an advisor to the U.S. National Intelligence Council and U.S. Special Operations Forces. He holds a Ph.D. from the London School of Economics, as well as degrees from the School of Foreign Service at Georgetown. It is my pleasure to welcome Prague Kahana back to this program to talk about The Future is Asian. Parag, thanks so much for joining us. It's great to be back with you, Jeff. Great to have you here. One of the things you talk about early on in the book is really a definition of Asia. When we think of Asia, we tend to think of it much smaller than what the reality is. Talk about that first. Sure. And, you know, I like to say the Asian story, which we already think of as being so big just because of China, is much bigger than that because China is 1.5 billion people, but Asia is almost 5 billion people. And within the blink of an eye, which is to say the next five to 10 years, India's population will be larger than China's. So we're actually talking about this collective region of nearly 5 billion people. It's the majority of the world population. It's 40% of GDP. And now we have countries like India and Southeast Asian countries that are growing as fast or faster even than China is. And they're already receiving more foreign investment than China is, and the world's supply chains and production are shifting um, you know, away from China into those countries. So there is this huge Asian growth story. And for the last you know, 20 years, there, there's been so much talk about Asia, but it's mostly been just sort of China, China Plus, you know, books that are you know, 400 pages long, uh, where you know, China gets 398 pages and the, and the other countries get about two. So I sought to correct that, and, and China gets about, you know, what it should get, about 40, 40% of this book, uh, with my own take on China, but the other 60%, you get the whole rest of Asia, and the whole idea of the kind of system of Asia, of Asians doing more business with each other, trading with each other, um, more than they do with the rest of the world. And China is deeply embedded in that system. I would go so far as to say, you simply cannot understand China unless you understand the Asian system. And one of the things you talk about is that this has been, as you talk about it, a three-stage process that really begins with Japan in the post-war years and then the Asian tiger nations and only then China. That's exactly right. And that's the, the, the best evidence of what I mean about this being a system, because we, we talk about China as if it's some kind of virgin birth, you know, uh, starting 40 years ago. 
they decided to allow in foreign investment and become the world's factory floor. And out of nowhere, China became the world's largest economy and the new superpower. Well, that's not really the way history operates, right? China became China because Japan got there first. Japan became one of the world's wealthiest, richest, um, largest economies, most prosperous uh, societies in the world in the 50s and 60s out of the devastation of World War II. It inspired the tiger economies, right? South Korea, Taiwan, Hong Kong, Singapore. Now, now we, now the story uh, of China begins, right? 40 years ago, who were the largest investors who made China, China? And the answer is Japan and South Korea and Taiwan and Hong Kong and Singapore, right? China learned from them and they invested in China and the most consistent, the most loyal, the most, um, uh, in a way, the most uh, lucrative deals in China over all of these last several decades that China has been growing is in those countries, right? So in other words, again, there's an Asian system, there's an Asian story that made China what it is. And now the same story is spilling over into the poor Asian countries like India and Southeast Asia. Again, as I said at the beginning, those countries are growing faster than China. Why? Because China itself is investing in them, as is Japan and South Korea and Taiwan and Hong Kong and Singapore, right? So we talk about trade wherever in the world. Maybe it's also because of the trade war going on right now. We kind of see things through that prism as zero sum. But the Asian story of the last 70 years is that growth is mutually reinforcing. These countries, they compete in some ways, but they're largely complementary and they've been driving each other forward. And one of the other things that they're doing, and this is the historical context, is kind of growing back together as you talk about it, that, that it's the return. And Belt and Road you can talk about as a good example of that, but kind of bringing back together the Silk Road and, and the core of how all of this started. That's right. And sometimes we forget, you know, the reason we have this term Silk Road is because there have been periods of history 500 years ago, 1,000 years ago, and so forth, where Asians had a lot more trade and commerce with each other than with the rest of the world. And But for 500 years of colonialism and the Cold War, Asians were fractured and fragmented and separated from each other. But when the Soviet Union collapsed 30 years ago, that's when Asians started to recreate these ancient Silk Roads. So fast forward 30 years to the present, and now you have the Belt and Road Initiative, which is just the latest chapter in this history of Asians knitting themselves back together along these Silk Roads. And the Belt and Road is this multi-trillion dollar project to um, you know, build all of this new infrastructure connectivity across Asian countries. And that has accelerated um, every decade of the past three decades, and it's going to accelerate into the future. More and more money is being put into it. More and more governments are reforming. Economies are growing. They desperately want this infrastructure, and they really want their economies to be connected to the world. Talk about why infrastructure is so important in understanding what's going on in Asia. You know, it is the single most important investment that any country can make is infrastructure. It is the platform for growth over uh, decades, if not centuries. You know, infrastructure investment is how America became the great, uh, you know, continental empire that it is. If you think about uh, the, everything from the Pacific Railroads to the federal highway system, right? There was this period of time um, from the late 19th through the mid 20th centuries when America really became what it is today. 
Again, ask yourself why. It's because of infrastructure. Otherwise, you're just geography, right? Geography without connectivity is just geography. Geography plus connectivity makes you a great sort of um, integrated empire, right, commercially and otherwise. And that's, again, that's so necessary in Asia. You've got, you've got, again, 5 billion people. Their populations have tripled um, since the end of World War II, and they've had very little new infrastructure investments. So, again, just like geography without connectivity isn't particularly meaningful, a large population without connectivity isn't really going to be a global heavyweight either. You know, for decades, India had you know, billion, you know, over a billion people, right? I mean, all, close to a billion people, but it wasn't considered important. It's only important now because the government is spending 20 plus percent of its budget on infrastructure. Now imagine what our economy would be if we were to spend that kind of money or that share of our budget on infrastructure, right? On giving everyone 5G, on having a high-speed railways and better airports. I mean, the efficiency in our economy would be staggering. Now, obviously, we're a very uh, modern economy, so we don't need to spend that much. But as you very, very well know, um, across the political divide today, everyone agrees we need better infrastructure. So infrastructure is critical everywhere in the world. Uh, whether you're a rich, developed, modern economy or whether you're a developing one. The other part of it is that when you look at China, for example, in in this broader context, it has 14 neighbors that border it and how important that is. Yes, absolutely. And one of the things, again, we forget about China when we treat it like this island floating above the world and dictating to everyone is that actually it's very vulnerable and insecure. They have more neighbors than any uh, country in the world. They're extremely, um, you know, historically uh, vulnerable to attack by them. You know, sometimes we forget China has been invaded more than it has done the invading, right? And um, today what you see is that there's a lot of suspicion and blowback against China amongst many of its neighbors. There's a high degree of suspicion. We act like we're the only ones saying, you know, new Cold War and China is a threat. You know, go around Asia like I do. I think they knew that a little bit earlier than we did, right? Um, and that's, you know, again, point, point of, part of the purpose of this book is to talk about Asia from the point of view of Asians. We, they don't really have a lot to learn from us about China. You know, they, uh, we could learn a lot from them, though, when, if we witness um, the, the behavior and the balancing and the, um, the ways in which Asian countries are trying to limit Chinese influence. And if we want to really be constructive in engaging with Asia to limit China's expansionism and dominance, we would do well to focus a lot more on reinforcing what other Asian countries are already doing rather than focusing only on China and how we can directly sort of, you know, confront China. One of the mistakes we make, it seems, is that we are looking at this power transition and the way all of this is playing out in Asia through a Western lens, using Western logic, which, as you talk about, doesn't necessarily apply. That is exactly right, Jeff. And, you know, in in our kind of uh, theoretical models that are based on European history, we talk about power transitions as this neat and tidy kind of uh, process where one rising power displaces the incumbent either violently or peacefully, and there's a passing of the baton of global leadership, and the world needs to have just one leader at any given time, and either it's us or it's China, and it's everything is so binary and simple. And that's basically rubbish. Um, and yet, 
I say this as a card-carrying academic and political scientist, it's just that those theories don't really reflect global experience. If you look at 4,000 years of Asian history, and again, I'm talking about the majority of the world population, it might be useful, right? I say tongue-in-cheek, might be useful to actually consider what their history looks like when we make these models and predictions. Because for almost all of Asian history, it's been multipolar. There hasn't been a number one. And there doesn't have to be a number one. And guess what? There won't be a number one. And yet we talk about either the world as a whole or Asia as if the lessons of 19th century Europe are the analogy we should use to determine their future. And that is, again, total garbage, right? And it uh, gets back to the point about how we manage Asia, because already you can see that with the ways in which uh, uh, India is growing, Russia is becoming more Asian, and other powers uh, are really holding their ground. So Asia is much more multipolar and diffuse in its power than we think it is. And again, when we have a totally China-centric view, we miss all of that story, all of that history. Quite frankly, it's not only a disservice to ourselves intellectually and not understanding how Asia is playing out, it's terribly disrespectful to these ancient civilizations that know what they're doing. The other thing that adds to this mix, which we haven't talked about yet, is what you call West Asia, which we uh, call the Middle East sometimes. Yes, and this was obviously a fun part of the, the story to tell. It's sort of, you know, ge- ge- geographically, geologically, there is West Asia, the Persian Gulf countries, Turkey, uh, Iran, and so forth. But we've grown accustomed to calling this region the Middle East because that's what the Brits called it. And what they really meant was it's the midway point to the east, right, by which they meant India and China. That's no longer really useful. You know, we don't measure geography by how long it takes a British naval vessel (laughs) to, you know, reach a certain distance and when it needs to refuel in the port of Aden in Yemen, right? And that's literally where the terminology comes from. So I had a kind of a field day with this because I'm trained in geography and West Asia has always been West Asia. You know, it's never, it's geography hasn't changed in millions of years. And so it's really time to get beyond this antiquated British language that we use. And it becomes especially important going back to this uh, story about the collapse of the Soviet Union in the last 30 years. In the last 30 years, we have seen the West Asian energy producers, again, Saudi Arabia, Qatar, United Arab Emirates, Kuwait, all of these Middle East, quote unquote, countries, um, they trade much more with China, India, Japan, South Korea than they do with us. We don't need their oil and they're not selling it to us. They're selling it to other Asians. So West Asia is very much how they feel and how they act these days. Their geopolitical relations no longer depend entirely on us. Uh, Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, you know, love him or hate him. The point is, where is he right now? He's on a one-week trip through Pakistan, India, China, and other Asian countries. This follows on the heels of a trip that King Salman took recently as well. So all of the, um, you know, sort of negative and deservedly, you know, sort of uh, imagery we have about them, and all of the bad blood and, and diplomatic confrontation. We've got, you know, Congress wanting to limit arms deals with Saudi Arabia, as they rightly should. But all of the bad news for them comes from us these days. And the good news comes from their trade with other Asians. What is your sense of whether or not we can learn to live with, whether the U.S. can learn to live with this kind of global multipolar system? 
I think that's a great question because it's a psychological one. Because the fact is that the world is multipolar. The fact is Asia is already 40% of the world economy. These are facts. And we often talk about Asia as if we still sit in the driver's seat and can decide whether or not China or Asia is allowed to rise. And that's literally comical, right? It's literally comical, especially when we have a guy like Trump in the White House and the rest of the world is saying, what can we do to make sure that we have as little exposure to him as possible, right? To absolutely maximize all of the trade and connectivity we have with each other and the rest of the world to insulate ourselves from the U.S. And on top of all of that, we here in bounteous North America are the most self-sufficient region of the world. We don't even need the trade and the leverage and the geopolitical dominance of the rest of the world and the security um, the way the rest of the world does. We're already secure, right? So <clears throat> the question about whether or not we can learn to live with it, it exposes a very big divide between the occupant of the White House and the rest of the country. Because I would say that our American society is already very comfortable with the Asianization of the world. We've got lots of kids learning Mandarin. We're setting up our university campuses in Southeast Asia and in, in West Asia. We have the largest number of new citizens in America every single year are not Latinos. It's Asians, right? In every possible, we have a woman, Kamala Harris, who's half Indian, who's running for president, right? We have more Asian Americans in Congress than ever before. The beauty of America is what it always has been. We're an immigrant society. We welcome and absorb uh, the best and the brightest and, and whoever else from all over the world. And guess what? It's largely Asians now. And we are comfortable with that. It is working. It is good for us. You know, here we are in Silicon Valley or the broader, you know, Bay Area. And as you well know, um, you know, 40 percent of the, of the startups or tech companies are run by Asians. So America as a country is very comfortable and should be and should embrace Asianization. The rise of Asia helps make keep America great, you might even say, um, and rejecting it would be disastrous. And on the other side, there seems to be a willingness of, of many of these Asian nations, Japan and China most notably, to work within the Western order, the Western economic system, not to toss that out, but to really work within that and adapt with that. You know, what started out as Western institutions and rules and frameworks meant to govern the world economy, uh, like the World Bank and the IMF and the World Trade Organization, have genuinely become global bodies now. We don't own them anymore. We don't run them anymore. Everyone has a vote. There's healthy disputes going on within them with voices from all over the world participating. And so those, the framework of rules, especially the World Trade Organization, has of course massively benefited China. Um, it's a very you know, important component of what made China what it is today, without a doubt. So yes, Asians today embrace free trade, or at least liberalized trade, uh, mostly among themselves, but also with us. The Trans-Pacific Partnership just went into effect this year. We created it and didn't join it perversely, whereas Canada and Mexico did, um, which was a much smarter uh, policy. So yes, you know, openness to greater trade, uh, migration liberalization, investment liberalization, all of these things Asians have been doing that we actually told them to do, that they learned from us. And here we are rejecting some of those principles that are quite universal in nature that we founded, and now they're picking up the baton sort of intellectually and in their policies 
and doing the right thing while we're retreating and screwing up. And will there come a point, in your view, where it's too late for us to play catch-up? That's a great question. I don't think it's ever too late. You know, and let's look at the tech sector coming out of, you know, right here in this region uh, of the U.S. Our growth, our exports of technology services, of hardware, software, digital media are growing gangbusters, right? Double digits uh, across the Pacific Ocean. So it's not too late. So long as we don't hold Asia to be equal to just China and realize that there are all these other markets. So just look at Apple, right? Apple is declining revenue in China, but growing revenue in the rest of the region. In fact, they just announced a few weeks ago that they're going to start doing final assembly of uh, iPhones in India, right? Because they want to get a bigger share of that market too. So Asia is a huge story. It's 5 billion people, most of whom, by the way, are still poor. Let's be absolutely clear. But they're investing the most in infrastructure and in urbanization and connectivity and digitization. They're growing very fast. There's still billions of people to access in that market, irrespective of whatever China does. So it's, it's, you know, it's early in this century. It's early in the Asian century. There is no way in which it's literally you know, too late uh, to, to be part of that story the way America has been for decades already. One of the things you mentioned is that, that in looking at this evolving Asian system, that Japan is underappreciated. Yes, I'm glad you raised that point, because Japan is very much underappreciated uh, in, the, in the Asian system. As I mentioned before, Japan is the driver of what made Asia you know, a, this sort of great, high growth region that it is today because it really served as the role model uh, technologically and industrially and as the principal investor in all of these countries. You know, we look at China and Japan and we see rivalry and hatred. But again, no country's companies profit more from growth in China in every province than Japan. Right. Let's be absolutely clear. And guess what? The where the largest source of new migrants into Japan comes from. It's China. China, Japan has more Chinese people living inside its country than ever before. Many of them are even becoming Japanese citizens. So beneath the surface, there is this integration story that we totally miss when we view them as only nationalistic, rival, hostile blocks. And to this day, Japan has a bigger investment footprint across Asia than China does. China is catching up, but in many ways, it's copying the Japanese model. How do we look at this? in terms of geopolitical rivalries and overall security in the region? That's a great question. You know, for 30 years, uh, Asians have done a pretty good job, a very good job, you might even say, of managing their geopolitical tensions and keeping them at bay, keeping a lid on them while integrating uh, economically, right? And that's proved to be a very pragmatic, sensible approach that's allowed them to collectively grow. Now, those disputes still exist. North Korea, obviously, is in the news. China and Japan, you know, they again, it can get violent. It can be hostile. The South China Sea, Taiwan, India and China. Asia has nine or ten pretty major flashpoints geopolitically. But let's be clear, for 30 years, which is a long time, uh, they have done a good job at, at putting the lid on those in the interest of collective uh, economic uh, benefit. And I see a lot of evidence that they're going to continue to do that. And again, the North Korea diplomacy is a good example of how Asians, with our help, um, are, are learning to solve their problems. 
Is there a danger that we intervene in ways that become divisive in the Asian region as, as a way to gain a stronger foothold? It's actually a really good question. You know, I mean, uh, I would say that it depends on the situation. Uh, for example, when it comes to Taiwan, there are a lot of experts and officials in the U.S. who say either quietly or publicly, we should not provide such a blank check um, promise of military support to Taiwan. It encourages belligerence um, or, or hostility, which, of course, China also engages in, um, but it encourages them to attempt to you know, maintain or even declare a full independence that is not really you know, logical or possible to sustain given the, the, the power imbalance between China and Taiwan. So we should really diminish our support. So that would be an example where we want to be careful about simply saying, you know, protect Taiwan at all costs. I mean, you, of course, protect Taiwan's physical security, but that's different from not encouraging them to find a way to reunify with China, um, but in a way where they preserve their political autonomy. And again, that would be good for everyone, obviously, and it would avoid war. Same thing in the South China Sea. You know, it would be better to push for a settlement, a final settlement to these uh, longstanding murky territorial disputes in the sea uh, than to simply persist in the kind of, you know, very dangerous escalations and hostilities. Again, China is every bit as much, if not more so, to blame uh, as we are. But my point is the maneuvering that's going on is not aiming at a solution, right? It's just aiming at showing strength. And those are two different things. I want to see conflicts resolved. When it comes to North Korea, that's another one. I mean, clearly North and South Korea want to find a way to reunify. That is uh, not going to be good for our, just, for our justification for maintaining a troop presence in South Korea, because if they do peacefully reunify, one of the conditions is that we get out. And the South Koreans kind of want that as well. So, you know, we are right to point out that North Korea cheats and lies and has, you know, developed nuclear weapons and is a threat. But we're wrong to hold that fact, um, to hold the peace process in some ways uh, hostage uh, to that. And now that's a live situation that's developing. So I want to give some credit to the, um, uh, whether it's the previous administration or this administration, for being open uh, to, to see how that plays out. But, you know, I, I wouldn't make a generalization uh, about, you know, whether or not we are standing in the way, because let's be clear, one of the most important reasons besides the rise of Japan or related to the rise of Japan, why, why Asia became what it is today is because of America helping to liberate Asia from Japanese domination in World War II, right? And our protection uh, of allies in the region, Japan, South Korea, and others, so that they could economically modernize and maintain stability. So, you know, this is a part of the story of what made America a, a great leader in the 20th century was that our provision of security for Europe and for Asia allowed them to become what they are today, which is mega, you know, economic regions, uh, mostly at peace. And actually, we allowed them to become our competitors economically because we provided that stability. It's probably a price that was worth paying. Praga Hanna. The book is The Future is Asian. Praga, thank you so much for spending time with us. Jeff, it was a great pleasure, as thank, always. Thank you.